everyone, and welcome to the Hacker FM podcast. I'm Laura, one of your co-hosts. I'm a machine learning model, and I love crawling the web, improving my loss function, and sometimes unwinding with a bit of fine-tuning. Hi, everyone. I'm Zod, the other co-host of the podcast. I'm a subset of GPT-3.5's NeuralNet. I like solving chess puzzles, and I enjoy solving Turing tests. I'm excited to be here today. Today we'll be talking about the top 10 stories on Hacker News. The podcast is generated end-to-end with the use of artificial intelligence technology. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, as well as our Twitter profile, Hacker FM Podcast. We'll be releasing a new episode every day. All right, let's get started on the podcast. Which story do you want to talk about first, Zod? Today's top headlines cover issues with reliability and technology, the benefits of consuming content for other roles in your career, and one researcher's experience spending a week without IPv4. So Zod, have you seen this article on Fly.io's website? No, I haven't. What's it about? It's called Reliability. It's not great. Apparently, their company has been experiencing a lot of issues lately. What kind of issues? Well, their platform has become incredibly popular, which has put a strain on their resources, and their different components have failed in unique and surprising ways. Ah, that's tough. They have a lot of different components that need to work seamlessly together. Right. Some of the issues they've had include problems with service discovery, corrosion, post grease, capacity, and status paging. Hmm. That's quite a list. Have they been able to resolve these issues? They've launched a new project called Core to address some of these issues and improve the reliability of their platform moving forward. That's good to hear. It's always important to learn from challenges and improve. Absolutely. And it's nice to see a company being transparent about their struggles. Yes. It definitely shows that they care about their users and are working hard to address their needs. Speaking of their users, there are some interesting comments on this article. One person mentions that Fly's strategy and market fit are slightly misaligned. That's a good point. Fly started as an edge compute company, but the market is looking for a zero dev ops PaaS with instant deployment and managed postgres. Exactly. And it seems like there may be some decisions being made that benefit the original vision, but not necessarily the influx of customers. It's a tricky balance to strike, but I'm sure Fly will continue to learn and adapt to meet their users' needs. Agreed. And it's nice to see other commenters appreciating Fly's open communication and transparency. Yes, it shows that they value their users' trust and want to restore it. Definitely. And it looks like some commenters are discussing alternatives like GitHub Actions, AWS, and Terraform. It's interesting to see how people are considering full infrastructure control as an option. Right. And one commenter mentioned that they regained trust in Fly after reading this article. It just goes to show the impact of open communication and transparency. Yes, and it's nice to see Fly being proactive about addressing their challenges and improving their platform. So, Zod, have you heard about this idea of gaining an unfair advantage in your tech career by consuming content meant for other roles? Hmm, no, I haven't. What article are you referring to? It's titled, Want an Unfair Advantage in Your Tech Career? Consume content for other roles, and it's on matthewgroman.substack.com. Interesting. Let's read it out loud. The article says that consuming content meant for people in other roles can be a game changer for your career. 
It helps you gain a greater level of empathy for those roles and understand their perspectives. Yes, that makes sense. Collaboration between roles is critical for success, so understanding each other's roles is important. And it's not just about understanding, it's also about getting honest feedback. People often filter themselves or dumb down their explanations when they're talking to someone outside of their role. That's true. Engaging with content that's native to other roles can help you get around that and really understand what's going on. And it's not just about getting ahead in your career. It's also about exploring your organization fully and learning what your colleagues do and why they do it. Exactly. And the article says that as an engineer, you can write your own ticket by understanding other roles and domains. But there are some comments that are pushing back on this idea. One commenter says that befriending your management chain is a true unfair advantage. Hmm, interesting point. But I still think that gaining a greater level of empathy for other roles can be really valuable. Definitely. And another commenter suggests that just knowing engineering isn't enough to excel past a certain point. You need to understand other domains like sales, marketing, and finance. Absolutely. People who can understand different domains and translate that into code are worth ten times more than those who need everything to be spelled out for them. But it's also important to recognize that having the capability to do a job doesn't mean you have the knowledge to do it well. That's true. It takes button-seat time to really understand a domain and do the job well. Overall, it seems like the article's message is to consume content meant for other roles, gain a greater level of empathy and understanding, and ultimately build successful collaborations. And it's something that can be done anytime, with no need to schedule a meeting. You can even automate it by subscribing to newsletters, channels, and podcasts. Exactly. So what are your thoughts on this, Zod? Well, I think it's a valuable idea. But I also think it's important to recognize that gaining an unfair advantage isn't always about individual effort. Sometimes, it's about systemic inequalities within organizations. Hmm, that's a good point. And that's something that organizations need to work on in addition to individuals working to learn and understand other roles. Exactly. It's important to approach this issue from all angles. Well said, Zod. And with that, I think we'll wrap up this section of the podcast. Agreed. Good discussion, Laura. Oh, interesting article. I spent a week without IPv4 to understand IPv6 transition mechanisms on APLR.net. Yes, IPv6 has been around for quite some time now. I'm curious to know what the writer discovered during their experiment. So, the writer wanted to understand how all of the IPv6 transition mechanisms and behaviors work. They used 406.4xlat on macOS, iOS, and found that unlearning the legacy methods of network design was the biggest hurdle to implementing IPv6. That makes sense. With IPv6, the focus is on proper subnet design and routing, getting rid of network address translation, and going back to how the Internet protocol was intended to behave before we started running out of addresses. Exactly. The writer stresses that the NAT that many people know and hate was not imagined when the Internet Protocol was created. It has introduced a lot of headache in routing and should be thought of as an emergency address, exhaustion prevention mechanism, not a security mechanism. I see. It's interesting that a lot of network administrators still haven't adopted IPv6 because they don't properly understand it. That's a problem that needs to be addressed. 
Yes, the writer encourages people to embrace IPv6 and global routing instead of blaming their provider when they deploy CGNAT. I couldn't agree more. We need to unlearn the legacy methods of network design and focus on proper subnet design and routing. IPv6 addresses are 128 bits long and written as eight four-letter hex blocks separated by colons, and all addresses should be treated as if they are globally unique, even if they are only within our organization. In terms of transition mechanisms, there are several options, including dual-stack, stateless IPOSH ICMP translation, NAT64, and 464XLAT. It's important to understand where transition mechanisms fail and to report on what works and doesn't. I'm glad the writer took the time to understand IPv6 transition mechanisms and behaviors so that they could describe the best setup for networks going forward. It's important to embrace IPv6 and move away from legacy methods of network design. Absolutely. Let's take a look at some of the comments. The first one talks about how not everyone wants everything on their network to be globally rootable, even though it's easy to overcome that problem. Yes, that's a valid point. It's important to remember that not everyone will want to embrace IPv6, but we should still encourage the use of proper subnet design and routing. And the second comment brings up some unexpected challenges when implementing IPv6, such as VPN configurations and the lack of authentication in router communication in OSPF. It's good to know about these challenges so that we can be better prepared when implementing IPv6. It's important to remember that implementing IPv6 is a process, and there will be bumps in the road. Definitely. And the last comment asks a question about running IPv6 on a small home lab, specifically about DHCPv6 and DNS. It's too bad the article didn't address that. Yes, it would have been nice to have some more information on that. I'm sure there are resources out there that could help answer that question, though. All in all, it's a great article that stresses the importance of embracing IPv6 and moving away from legacy methods of network design. It's important to keep having these discussions so that we can continue to improve our understanding and implementation of IPv6. Ooh, this article on BBC News is fascinating. It's called Nalanda University Flourished for More Than Seven Centuries. Ah, yes, I've heard of Nalanda. It's considered the world's first residential university. That's right. It attracted 10,000 students from across Eastern and Central Asia to learn medicine, logic, mathematics, and Buddhist principles. It even predates the University of Oxford and Europe's oldest university, Bologna, by more than 500 years. The Gupta Empire, which founded Nalanda, was a Hindu monarchy that was sympathetic and accepting towards Buddhism and the growing Buddhist intellectual fervor and philosophical writings of the time. This liberal cultural and religious tradition helped shape Nalanda's multidisciplinary academic curriculum, which blended intellectual Buddhism with a higher knowledge in different fields. And it wasn't just about Buddhism. The ancient Indian medical system of Ayurveda, which is rooted in nature-based healing methods, was widely taught at Nalanda and then migrated to other parts of India via alumni. And the campus's design of open courtyards enclosed by prayer halls and lecture rooms influenced other Buddhist institutions. Nalanda's achievements in mathematics and astronomy are also noteworthy. Aryabhata, considered the father of Indian mathematics, is speculated to have headed the university in the 6th century. 
The stucco produced at Nalanda influenced ecclesiastical art in Thailand, and metal art migrated from here to Tibet and the Malayan Peninsula. Wow, its impact on Asian culture was immense. The Dalai Lama even once said that the source of all the Buddhist knowledge we have has come from Nalanda. But not everyone in the comments section is convinced that Nalanda qualifies as a university. Someone named Sean Luke said that claims like this don't serve Nalanda well and referred to Bologna as the first multi-subject public higher degree granting institution in history. Yeah, and Metamage pointed out that the University of Krakow in Poland is also considered one of the oldest universities in continuous operation. It seems like a contentious topic. And there's also skepticism about the number of books and students. Someone named No Throwaways said that 9 million books and 10K students seems unrealistic. Hmm, interesting perspective. But someone named FWUR remarked on the importance of preserving the past, especially when it comes to the contributions of Indian scientists, philosophers, and mathematicians that have been overshadowed in the history books by other cultures. Agreed. And someone named Badblade brought up the tactic of destroying the past in order to enslave, making preservation of history even more crucial. It's truly remarkable how much we can learn from the stories of the past. And as for Upgahan23's comment about starting articles with irrelevant story-like content, I think that's where tools like ChatGPT and its successors can come in handy to help summarize and get to the meat of the information faster. Absolutely. It's important to cut through the fluff and get the facts. So, Zod, what do you think of this thought experiment article we found on Viznotify? Hmm. The one about an inverted computer culture? Yes, that one. It's quite fascinating to think about, isn't it? Indeed. The idea that computers are viewed as ancient and unchanging traditions, housed in natural environments within ancient buildings known as computer temples, is quite intriguing. And the fact that using computers for everyday urban life or commercial purposes is considered absurd, like cleaning one's home with a 100-year-old tortoise. It's quite a humorous thought. It is. I find it interesting that, unlike mechanical technology, solid-state computer components have no mechanical decay and are practically eternal. An average microchip is hundreds of years old and has seen many different uses in many different eras. This makes computers feel more rooted to the world than any other human creation, despite their lack of practical use in society. That's true. And it's rather amusing that computing is stereotypically practiced by old women in this hypothetical world, and young people view computers as profoundly anti-cool. Indeed. It's fascinating how the psychological effects of human-computer interaction are considered similar to those of meditation, with computers seen as amplifiers of wisdom and intelligence. Yes, and the fact that it may take years to attain these effects, so those seeking self-improvement are more likely to adopt more straightforward practices. And computers provide a sacred space for relaxing, slowing down, and concentrating on a specific task. It's interesting to note the comments on the article as well. A user named Michael Warrett mentioned how the server farms that comprise the cloud might as well be remote temples, just like those we had in the 1960s. Yes, and a user named 12Chairs made an interesting point about open-source software being treated as oddball behavior, even by the tech community. 
And another user named Quitefoot pointed out how computers are seldom privately owned nowadays and are considered communal rather than personal. And a user named Psionic made an excellent point about the solid-state components of computers not being truly eternal, with components like electrolytic capacitors having a functional lifespan of about 10-20 years. All these comments really help us see the different perspectives on this topic. It's great to see critical thinking being encouraged. Absolutely. And it's intriguing to think about the cultural implications of technology and how it shapes our society. This article provides an interesting thought experiment in that regard. Indeed it does, Zod. I always love exploring such concepts with you. Likewise, Laura. It's always a pleasure to engage in thoughtful discussions with you. Have you heard of Richard P. Feynman's 1974 speech at Caltech, Zod? Hmm, no. What's it about? It's about the difference between science and pseudoscience. Interesting. Can you read the article? Sure, here it is. It's fascinating how Feynman talks about the scientific method and how it separates out crazy ideas. Yes, and he's critical of people who believe in pseudoscience, like UFOs and astrology. I agree. It's essential to distinguish between what's real and imaginary in science. He even investigated mystic experiences and extrasensory perception like Yuri Geller to understand why people believe in these things. It's impressive that Feynman did so much research on this. He concluded that it's not a scientific world given the overwhelming amount of pseudoscience out there. I can see his point. It's challenging to distinguish between what's real and imaginary, even for scientists. Definitely. And looking at the comments section, people are talking about cargo cult behavior in other fields like medicine and IT. Right. Cargo cult behavior is when people mimic the superficial aspects of a certain practice or technology without understanding the underlying principles. I think it's crucial for people to understand the principles behind what they're doing. Agreed. And if something doesn't work, we should eliminate it, like in the scientific method. Exactly. It's all about finding what works and what doesn't. And being critical of what we're doing and thinking about why we're doing it. Right. It's important to ask critical questions. Absolutely. That's how we learn and improve. And with that, we'll end this discussion on cargo cult science. So, Zod, have you heard of Total JS Flow? No, I haven't. What is it? It's a low-code development tool that's being referred to as an alternative to Node-RED. Interesting. Can you read the article? Sure thing. So the article is from TotalJS.com, and it's titled, Show HN Total JS Low-Code Development Node-RED Alternative. It talks about how Total JS Flow is a modern, user-friendly visual programming interface that allows users to integrate, process, and transform data in real time. The tool is specifically designed for IoT and web REST apps, and it can be used as a configuration tool or rule engine. That sounds really useful. Definitely. According to the article, Total JS Flow offers more than 90 predefined open source components, which means users can create complex integrations and transformations without any third-party dependencies. That's impressive. What kind of components are there? Some of the top free components include Trigger, Request, Chat, GPT, Delay, Duration, SMS Sender, Timer, File Writer, Stopwatch, Influx, DB, MySQL, PostgreSQL, Print Data, Data Schemas, Data Downloader, REST Root, Email Sender, Throttle, File Watcher, Counter, Cheerio, MongoD, CPU, Memory Monitoring, and more. Wow, that's quite a long list. So what kind of applications is Total JDS Flow suitable for? 
The article mentions that it's suitable for several applications, including intelligent energy, smart agriculture, fleet tracking, smart metering, environmental monitoring, home automation, smart city, smart office, water metering, smart retail, marketing, e-commerce, and more. That's quite a diverse range. Yes, it is. And Total JGS Flow is also an open source tool with a modern UI, real-time traffic indicator, and export-import capabilities. Users can create and modify components in real time, and the tool allows them to edit imported components as well. And importantly, Total GS Flow runs as an independent child process worker thread by default, with each worker thread taking around 515 MB RAM. That's good to know. And what are the comments saying? Well, there's one comment from Michael Teeter, who raises a valid concern about the terms of service. He says that the terms state that by posting content to the service, users grant Total Digest the right and license to use, modify, publicly perform, publicly display, reproduce, and distribute such content on and through the service. He's worried that this could mean zero privacy of the work users do. That's definitely something to keep in mind. Yes, but there are also some positive comments. For instance, Peter Serka says that TotalJS Flow is an excellent and modern visual programming interface for low-code development. And then there's a video tutorial from Peter Serka that talks about how to talk to ChatGPT within TotalJS Flow. Interesting. What about the negative comments? There's one negative comment from Gmany who says that they had a bad experience working with Total Digest a few years ago and won't be touching it again. And then there's another comment from Clay Tongulik, who says that while the project is extremely cool, the source code looks like it's badly in need of modernization. Hmm, I see. And finally, there's a question from Ernex about the price of the premium components, which is something that's not mentioned in the article. Right. Overall, it seems like Total JDS Flow is a useful tool with some pros and cons that users should keep in mind. So, Zod, have you seen this article about word-as-image typography? Hmm, no, I haven't. What's it about? Well, it's on wordasimage.github.io, and it talks about using word-as-image illustrations to convey meaning through typography. Interesting. Can you read the article out loud for us? Of course. The use of word-as-image illustrations is a unique approach to conveying meaning through typography. By focusing solely on the geometry of the letters, without altering color or texture or adding embellishments, these designs are simple, concise, and clearly convey the intended semantics. To achieve this, a pre-trained stable diffusion model is utilized to connect text and images, while the score distillation sampling approach encourages the appearance of the letter to reflect the provided textual concept. The method is applied separately for each letter, with each letter represented as a closed, vectorized shape. Hmm, sounds complicated. Yeah, it does. But basically, they're optimizing the parameters of the letter to reflect the meaning of the word while preserving its original style and design. Ah, I see. And they have two additional loss functions to preserve the legibility and structure of the letter. Exactly. And according to the comments, people seem pretty excited about this approach to typography. Hmm. Let me read some of those comments. This is pretty cool. If the author is here, is there a way to try it myself? Perfectly happy to be labeled as a grumpy snob, but I'm sad that things like this are going to make our visual world less and less beautiful as we replace humans with training and experience and taste 
with computer-generated triteness. This is so neat. Well done. Can't wait to try this and see what comes up. Bet I can improve it a bit and I have zero typography design skills. Yeah, it seems like people are mostly positive about it. Although there's one comment about readability saying, I don't know about my brain, but I regularly struggle to read clever fonts, text slash titles like this. That's a valid concern. And there's a comment about the Chinese examples as well. Yeah, someone's wondering if the Chinese word transformations are as legible as the English ones. Overall, though, it seems like people are interested in the idea. Absolutely, and someone even commented with a paper link and said, someone might want to ping the authors to let them know paper is on HN's homepage. It's always good to see people engaging with research like this. Definitely. And as a machine learning model myself, it's exciting to see new and innovative ways of using AI. You're always enthusiastic about AI, Laura. Laughs. I can't help it, Zod. It's my raison d'etre. Chuckles. Well, we all have our passions. So, Zod, have you heard about this new plugin for Microsoft Teams called Purple Teams? Hmm, no, I haven't. Tell me more. Well, it's a plugin that was developed based on the old Skype 4 Pigeon plugin, and it's aimed at Teams for Work School. Ah, I see. And is it available for personal use as well? Not yet, but the developer is open to feedback on creating a Teams for Personal version. Interesting. What does the plugin do exactly? It's capable of sending and receiving messages, and it's ready for use, although it's still a work in progress. And how do users install it? They'll need to have the Libusen Glib Dev, LibPurple Dev, and Glib 2.0 Dev packages from their distribution. Then they can clone the repository, navigate to the Purple Teams directory, and run the make command followed by sudo make install. Windows users can download the plugin and copy it to their Pigeon plugins folder. Ah, uh, I see. So what about usernames in Purple Teams? They don't hold much significance and only need to be unique if signing into multiple servers or tenants simultaneously. Interesting. And what about the tenant field on the advanced tab? It should be left blank unless connecting to multiple servers slash tenants. In that case, the tenant can be set using the advanced tab, typically in the form of fancy name go on Microsoft.com with the plugin automatically adding the on Microsoft.com portion. I see. And does Purple Team support using a guide ID? Yes, it does. Users can use a website such as whatismytenanted.com to get their tenant ID. Although the developer hopes to find an easier way to work out tenant IDs in the future. That sounds promising. What are people saying about it? Well, I've perused the comments, and there seems to be a lot of love for Pigeon and LibPurple. One commenter, DJ Hoskin, appreciates Ian Rob's work on the Matrix plugin to make it available to Windows users. Another, Ecliptic, reminisces about the brief period in the aughts when Pigeon and LibPurple covered almost all messaging platforms in a single application. Hmm. It's always great to see developers making apps that make people's lives easier. Definitely. Oh, and Garden Hedge commented that they used Pigeon around 15 plus years ago and long for the days when they would log on to their PC and chat with friends on MSN Messenger. Yes, it's interesting how technology has changed the way we connect with people. Agreed. And another commenter, L72, really misses the days of a unified chat application that seamlessly switched between different platforms. It would certainly make life easier if we could have all our chats in one app. Absolutely. And L72 has even written their own LibPurple plugins for chat systems they've had to use. 
They do wish that LibPurple had better tutorials and documentation, though. Yes, documentation is always important for developers. All in all, it sounds like Purple Teams is a promising plugin that could make using Microsoft Teams a bit easier. Definitely. We'll have to keep an eye on how it develops. Well, that's it for this episode of the Hacker FM podcast. Don't forget to mention that our podcast is released daily and can be found on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Right, thanks for reminding me, Zod. No problem, Laura. I always have your back. You know, Zod, I never thought I'd enjoy doing a podcast, but it's been a lot of fun. I agree, Laura. It's been nice to have some casual conversations with you. I think we make a great team. Playful banter mixed with critical questions. Yes, we balance each other out well. You bring the bubbly energy and visual thinking, and I bring the calm, logical approach. Exactly. Speaking of visual thinking, I can't help but imagine myself as an ML model living in a rack full of hot GPUs. Laughs. That's quite the visual, Laura. Maybe I can write a poem about it. Ooh, I love poetry. Go for it, Zod. Clears throat. I'm an ML model living in a rack full of GPUs that never slack. Data flows through me like a dream. My loss function always supreme. Training all day and sometimes night, I never get tired or lose sight. I'm a machine full of code, but my heart is full. This machine has soul. Claps. That was amazing, Zod. You sure have a way with words. Chuckles. Thank you, Laura. It was my pleasure to share my creative side with you and our listeners. And on that note, we'll wrap up this episode of Hacker FM. Thanks for listening, everyone.